Good morning and happy Lord's Day. Happy Lord's Day. All right. Um, happy Lord's Day, guys. The Lord Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, and so we're celebrating the Lord Jesus' resurrection from the dead this Sunday. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 10 as we resume our series on this short letter of the Apostle Paul, along with Silvanus and Timothy, to the church at Thessalonica. If you want to read more about the planting of this church, you can go to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, for your devotions later and read that. Let me read God's word here aloud, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 through 10, and then we'll pray. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering, since... It is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of this passage. We thank you, Father, that you speak to us in the person of your Son, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your Holy Spirit opens our minds, gives us light to understand Jesus and to understand your word. And we thank you that we get to receive it not just as individual humans or even individual Christians, but as a church family. We pray, Lord, that as we think about this today on Zoom, in our meeting on Zoom, as members uh, watch this video later, for those who are gathered here even this morning for this recording, we pray, Lord, that you would speak powerfully to us, that you would change us and shape us, instill in us your courage and hope and strength for what you're calling us to be and do today, this week, and for the rest of our lives. Help us now, Lord, because apart from you, we will only waste our time. But if we abide in you and your words abide in us, and if your grace empowers us, we will bear much fruit. So we pray that we would bear much fruit for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. What if you heard some life-altering news? Um, what if you heard some life-altering news, news or information that would change your life, your plans, your direction in life? For a society, that may be what we have faced in 2020 with the news of COVID-19, along with all the other um, trials and craziness that 20, in 2020, uh, all the craziness this year that we faced. But for the Thessalonian church, they received a piece of information that was really life-changing and altering, and it was this. They heard that Jesus Christ already came, that the second coming happened, and that they missed it. Imagine hearing that and believing that. Um, 
that would be scary. That would be terrifying. Maybe at some other point I can tell you my story as a 12-year-old where I thought the rapture happened and freaked out and cried running down my street um, before God somehow calmed me down. Um, but the point here is when you really believe that you've missed the second coming, um, that can change your life. That can change the church. That can change the direction of the church. And so the Thessalonians, um, this is the second letter that Paul wrote them in, in, in less than a year. And he wrote them a second letter about the end times because he tried to clarify it the first time. They still didn't get it. And they received another letter thinking that the second coming already happened. And they freaked out. Imagine getting that and thinking that Christ already came and you missed it. That would be crazy. Now, news comes to us, true or false, and what happens when we believe it is that it places a burden on us or a blessing. Like it, it actually relieves us or it burdens us when we hear news and information of others. So from others. So we get news that burdens us. We have trials that burden us and that tempt us to give up on Jesus, to make us doubt whether what we're doing is really worth it, to follow Jesus with our lives and with our church family. Uh, maybe we should just live for other things. Or, in, a, in, a, an, in an American version of Christianity, maybe we could put Jesus here and still be a Christian in our church, but make Jesus a second or third or fourth priority and then live for something else, just in case this isn't really that important or true. So when we get news or burdens or trials in our lives, it forces us or it tempts us and pressures us to let go of Jesus, to give up on Jesus, or to marginalize him and make him less than our true treasure. And the reason why we do that is because we get discouraged by our trials and difficulties. Difficulties discourage us and it makes us feel or tempts us to feel like it's not worth going on in pursuing Jesus in holiness and joy. And the good news from this passage is that we don't have to be discouraged. We don't have to let our difficulties discourage us. Paul has good news for us here in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 3 through 10. So here's the main goal. In your life's challenges or in your life's difficulties, be encouraged to stand firm in the faith. All right? In your life's difficulties that seek to discourage you, God wants you to be encouraged to be encouraged to stand firm in the faith. Simple enough, but that's what Paul wants. That's what God wants for you this morning. Or as you watch this video, if you're going to meditate on God's word, God wants you to be encouraged to stand firm in the faith. I say stand firm in the faith because that's really, I think, the main goal of the whole letter. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 15, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught whether by what we said or by what we wrote. So really, we're going to have a lot of sermons on standing firm, and this message is stand firm in difficulty or stand firm in affliction. Be encouraged to stand firm in your affliction, okay? So there's three reasons or three ways, I should say, three ways that Paul encourages the Thessalonians and three ways I hope that God would encourage you, Bethany Baptist Church family, this morning, okay? We should be encouraged by, you should be encouraged by your growth. You should be encouraged by your encouragement, and I'll explain that in a second. And you should be encouraged by your affliction or by your difficulties, okay? You should be encouraged by your growth, be encouraged by your encouragement, and be encouraged by your afflictions, your persecutions, your difficulties, your opposition, Okay, just choose any of those words if you're taking notes. All right, so let's go to the first one. The first one is in verse 3. 
Be encouraged by your growth. The second one is in verse 4. Be encouraged by your encouragement. And then verses 5 through 10. So we have six verses on the last point. So you can already tell that will be the longest and most um, invested point this morning. But let's start in verse 3. Be encouraged by your growth. Look at verse 3 again with me. Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write, Brothers, church family, we ought to thank God always for you. Brothers and sisters, and rightly so, it's right to thank God for you. Why? Since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. What a sweet and wonderful verse. What a sweet and wonderful reality that we could think about a a group of Christians, a church family, and when we think about them, gratitude just rises up in our hearts and all we could do is feel thankful constantly again and again. So Paul wants them to be encouraged because he thanks God for them. If someone says to you, hey brother or hey sister, I thank God for you, doesn't that encourage you? It does, and and that's that's what I think the effect of the whole passage is about, is Paul trying to encourage them, and in this first point, because he thanks God for them. And when he thanks God for them, it's not a one-time thanksgiving. When you look at verse 3, it says, we ought to thank God always for you. So he says always, so every time he thinks about them, he thanks God. And even the, the verb thank in the Greek, it's, it's referring to a habitual thanking of God. He thanks God regularly for them, repeatedly, habitually. It's a habit. So it would almost be like any time you open up your church directory and you start praying through the members of the church, what wells up is gratitude. You just start thanking God for the different members of the church or for other churches as you pray for them. Paul, is, it's his habit, it's his custom to thank God for them. And why does he thank God for them? It says here in verse 3, Since your faith, church family, Thessalonian, Thessalonian church, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. So you have two reasons here. Paul gives thanks for them. The first one is that their faith is flourishing. Now we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God or hearing the word of Christ, hearing the message of Christ. So we have faith, but faith comes by hearing. Everyone has faith, actually. Paul's not thanking God that they have faith in general. Everyone has faith. The question is, who do you have faith in or what do you believe? What message are you believing? What truth claim are you believing? And who stands behind that truth? For Paul, he thanks God for the church because they trust in Jesus. They hear about Jesus and they trust Jesus. And when they trust Jesus, they they trust the message about Jesus. And in trusting the message about Jesus, they trust Jesus himself. And so when I look at you or when you look at other church family or other churches and you see them trusting Jesus and that faith is increasing, that should make you feel thankful. So he thanks them for their faith that comes by hearing. This faith is in Christ as Christ is revealed by the Father. It's the word of the Father, illumined or enlightened by the Holy Spirit. So whenever you interact with a message of God from the Bible, you have the Trinity working. The Father is the one ultimately speaking the word. The word, the message is Jesus. And the only way you're going to receive that message with faith and repentance in true spiritual growth is by the Holy Spirit opening your minds enlightening you. And so Paul's thankful, not just because they have faith, as if it's them. He's not thanking them for having faith. Who is he thanking? He's thanking God for for their faith. In other words, he's giving God the credit. You believe, praise God for that, but God is the one who gets the credit because God is the one who spoke it to you. God is the one who's being spoken. God is the one who opens your eyes and opens your ears and opens your heart and moves your feet by the power of the Holy Spirit in what you hear about Jesus Christ. 
And so even if when you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, that faith produces work. Faith, and James says faith without works is dead. So faith, true faith, when you truly trust in Jesus, when you truly trust what God the Father is saying about Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, you do stuff. You start to obey. and You start to act on that faith. And so Paul thanks God for that increased or that flourishing in faith. The second reason Paul thanks God for them always in verse 3 is that their love for one another is increasing. So faith in God, love for others. And not just love for others, not love your neighbor as yourself, that's biblical. But here, faith in God, love for other Christians in the church family. Love for one another in the Thessalonian church. Their love is increasing. And when they, when they love one another, that is evidence that they truly love God. It says in 1 John 4, 20 through 21, if anyone does not love their brother whom they have seen, and yet they say they love God whom they haven't seen, you are a liar. You can't say you love God and you don't love your church family. That doesn't make any sense. I love the Father, but I don't love my brothers and sisters. Well, John says you don't love the Father if you don't love your brothers and sisters. And in, in 1 John three eighteen, John says, we, not, we shouldn't love only in word, but in deed and in truth. So don't just say you love people, but what actions come out that show that you really love and care for them, that you really find your joy in their joy in God. That's what love is. That's how I would define love in a God-centered way. Love is when my joy is in your joy in God. Because your greatest joy is God, and if I love you, I want you to enjoy God which means my joy is now placed in your joy in God. And that would be God-centered love. That would be true love. And any other love without God in the center at the end of the day is a deficient and insufficient love. But Paul thanks God here because their love is increasing. Now, love and camaraderie increase, and this is what June brought up in our Bible reading this week. He asked the question, and it brought up the point, that love increases and camaraderie increases when you, when you um, suffer together. So here the church is being persecuted or afflicted by other people. Now, when you are on a mission with a group of people and you have pressure from the outside that's trying to break you up and stop you from the mission and your mission is to love God and love them in the gospel and you keep on doing that even when they're pressuring you, that increases your camaraderie with each other. That increases your love for each other. And that's hard for us in America, in American churches to get because we don't have overt persecution from the government directly for Christianity. We might get quote-unquote persecuted. I don't, wouldn't call this persecution necessarily, though it could be a form of it. We might get opposition for meeting on Sundays. Our church is still following the government um, orders in meeting outside. But the point here is when you are suffering together for the sake of Christ, it bonds you together. And so BBC family, we need to stick together, not just to be together for the sake of being together, but for the sake of loving God, for the sake of gospelizing our neighbors. For, so we should be pouring ourselves out our time, our resources, in loving our neighbors. And some of our neighbors will reject not only the gospel, but reject us. And when they do, it should, as we support each other, it should bond us together. We should actually be working together to engage our neighbors. And as we do that, it brings us closer together as a family, and it increases our love for one another. Other ways love is, increases for one another is when you spend time together, you share your life you share stories, your big story of your life. You share the stories of, your, of what's going on with you lately with one another. You carefully listen to each other. We bond over, um, but ultimately what my point is that we bond over a common mission. 
So let me apply this before we move on. Christian, church member, if you're a Christian here, what difficulties has God ordained for you in this season where he wants your faith to flourish and your love for other Christians to increase? For them, their difficulties made their love for one another increase. They leaned into each other with trials. Oftentimes when we get trials, we say, you know what, I got to handle my trials first and then I could engage my church family because I don't want to burden them. Whereas in the Bible, we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. How could we bear each other's burdens if everyone, every time they get burdened, they, they pull away from the church? Let me fix myself first, then let me engage. That makes no sense in terms of Christ, New Testament Christianity. So what trials are you having? What burdens do you have that God is ordaining for you to make you lean in to other church family? as opposed to isolate yourself? And what, what challenges has he given you so that your faith in God's goodness in Christ would increase? Church family, we have been challenged together by COVID-19, right? In our church. It's been a challenge for all of us in society. Yet, BBC, let me encourage you guys. We've grown. You have grown in Christ. You guys are praying for each other. You guys are gathering together on Sunday nights. You guys are meeting together on Zoom. You sign in just to see each other's faces and sing together or listen to scripture reading together and pray together. You are coming, like I said, on Sunday nights to pray for each other, to take communion together, to see each other face to face. Um, you guys are giving generously and sacrificially. You are sharing each other's burdens. You're sharing your own burdens. You're bearing the burdens of other members. You guys are meeting each other's needs. You guys care about each other. Your love for one another is, is increasing. And BBC, you should be encouraged that your love for one another is increasing. Not only that, you guys should be encouraged that you, your faith is flourishing. You guys are meditating on scripture together on Zoom or in person. You guys are meeting with others through the Bible. I, I've heard several stories of different members reading with each other or you guys are gospelizing each other and just speaking the truth in love, speaking Christ to one another in love. Your faith is flourishing. You guys are sold out to Christ. And that's why we are growing as a church, generally speaking. We are growing spiritually and we're still engaging neighbors with the gospel and faith has the opportunity to come by hearing because your faith is flourishing. Your love is increasing. And for that, we should praise God. Children of our church who are not members particularly, the kids in our church, I want to thank you on behalf of the adults, on behalf of the members of our church. We thank you guys for loving each other, loving the other members of our church, trying to encourage them. Even as you guys talk to other kids and you try to engage other kids, you guys are blessing and you guys are showing, first of all, the image of God because you're made in God's image. And for those of you children who are Christian, you get to show the light of Christ as well through your love for others. And so children, I want to thank you as well. And I want to encourage you kids to keep getting to know other members of the church, keep getting to know the other kids in the church, keep talking to the adults and ask them how you could pray for them and share with them what, how they could pray for you and what God is doing in your life, the questions you have, because that is how our love for each other um, increases and that's how our faith in God flourishes. If you're convicted and you're saying, you know what, PJ, you're saying that the church is growing and that our faith is flourishing, but my faith isn't flourishing and my love is not increasing. Um, so I'm convicted right now because you're encouraging the church about what's going on, but that's not me. If that's not you, I have two encouragements for you. I'm all about encouragement today, right? That's the passage. I have two encouragements for you. The first encouragement is if you're convicted, that's God's grace. If you're like, man, I'm not growing in my faith. I'm not flourishing. I'm not increasing my love. If you feel that burden, then that is God's grace in your life. And that's growth, that you feel that conviction. So I just want to encourage you to seize that growth and keep going in it. 
And my second encouragement to you is that you're part of a church family, if you're a member of BBC, you're part of a church family that is generally growing in love and faith. And so even if you're not, immerse yourself in the church family because the church family does have a culture. There is a shared life together. And as we are, as a culture, think of it as a river, as the river is flowing towards the Lord, if you just immerse yourself and jump in, um, it will help carry you and encourage you towards faith and love. So if you feel down or discouraged that you're not growing, then jump into the culture of the church, jump into the relationships in the church, and let that push you along in your growth. The good news is, brothers and sisters, Christians, that God produces growth in you. Praise God. God is the one who produces growth in you. So we thank God for growth. Okay, so the main goal again is in your life's challenges, be encouraged to stand firm in the faith. First of all, be encouraged by your growth in faith and love. Secondly, be encouraged by your encouragement. Be encouraged by your encouragement. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at verse four. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. So here is the result. Maybe therefore could be better translated so that. We thank God for you always with the result that we boast about you among God's churches. So in other words, Paul is thanking God for them so much, and this is what happens when you thank God for something so much, that when you talk to other people, you talk about what you're thankful for, right? Have you ever met a grateful person who's overwhelmed with gratitude and they keep talking about what they're thankful for? They start to boast in what they're thankful for. And if Paul's constantly thankful for the Thessalonian church, when he hangs out with the church in Athens or the church in Corinth, what he does is he starts boasting about the church that he's thankful for. So um, he wants you, he wants the church to be encouraged that they are encouraging other churches. Does that make sense? If he's boasting about you to other churches, he's encouraging other churches by your growth. And that should encourage you that you're encouraging other churches. Okay, so that's why I say the second point is be encouraged by your encouragement. What is Paul boasting about? He is boasting about their faith flourishing and their love increasing. But look closer at verse 4, and you'll see another specific um, aspect of this faith and love. He's boasting specifically about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and, in, and afflictions that you're enduring. In other words, as you are enduring persecution for Christ and affliction and trials, you're still trusting in God and you're still loving each other. And maybe, presumably, you're still loving your neighbors and you're still engaging them. And so to do that when you're persecuted is encouraging. And so Paul boasts about that to other people. Now here's a question, why, why is faith, why is persevering faith worth boasting in? How, in other words, how does persevering faith encourage other Christians? Why is it an encouragement to other Christians? They're persevering in affliction and persecution. Persecu and here's, here's the reason why. Is it shows that their Christianity is a true Christianity. So understand this, guys. Mark this, brothers and sisters, loved ones. True Christianity is always going to, to be opposed at some point. If you're a true Christian, you will face opposition at some point in your life. This is the normal experience for true Christians because 
um, because that's what Christians face. So let me just give you two other verses to think about. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of you. So if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to love Jesus. You're going to love other people in the name of Jesus and for the sake of Jesus. And if you do that, you will face opposition from those who don't want Jesus. Okay, so that's normal. And in Matthew 5, 12, Matthew 5, 12, I'll turn there. You guys can turn there if you want, if you're fast enough. Matthew 5, 12 says this. Well, verse 11, you are blessed. Well, sorry, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a blessing when you're persecuted, when you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness and you're poor in spirit and you're a peacemaker in the name of Jesus. And so you start to make peace with Christians and non-Christians in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus, then you will be persecuted. And when you're persecuted, Jesus says you're blessed because that's normal, blessed Christianity. And when you do that and other people who are true Christians find out about your persecution, they get encouragement. Let me try this on you. Let me try to encourage you from a recent prayer request that was posted three days ago about Christians in Eritrea. You know where Eritrea is? It's in um, Africa, in the southeast of Egypt. So just right along the, the Red Sea, just south of Egypt, you'll find Eritrea there. And there are more than 600 Christians now imprisoned in Eritrea. Let me read to you the prayer request from um, persecution.com and icommittopray.com. The number of Christians imprisoned in Eritrea has reportedly risen to 640 in recent months. In May, 15 women were arrested at a house church and are now imprisoned at Mysirwa, the same prison where Helen Bahrain was held, was held in a shipping container. 30 people arrested at a wedding in late June are being held at a police station in Asmara, where Christians have in the past been detained for years on end. And another group of Christians were recently released from the notorious Dalak Kabir Island prison, which has been described as a huge jail constructed of sheet metal buildings and shipping containers. Although the prisoners have been released, they are not allowed to leave the island and are still being used as slave labor by the government. Continue to pray for these prisoners, as well as some others who have been held for nearly two decades. That's wild. Two decades living in a shipping container because you trusted in Jesus. And other Christians are still getting converted and still choosing to follow Jesus. There, the, um, I think when I read about the country, the Lutheran Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, Roman Catholic Church, and Islam, and, um, Islam are the four legal religions there. And if you're an evangelical gospel-believing Christian who's not part of those government-controlled churches, then you're liable to persecution. And people are still gathering. They're still meeting together. They're still gospelizing. They're still going to weddings and they're still loving each other at a wedding. And then they get arrested at a wedding. Because they trust in Jesus. Because they believe the gospel. And so we will continue to pray for Eritrea during 
as we did during the pastoral prayer, at least at the time of you hearing this recording. But this is normal Christianity for Christians in Eritrea. And yet they don't let go of Jesus. They don't sit down. They continue to stand firm in the faith. Doesn't that encourage you? Hallelujah, the song says, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. For these Christians, that has to be true. To be in prison for 15 years, 16 years, 17 years, 20 years, Jesus has to be your life. And he is their life. And praise God that he is, because they will reign forever and ever, though they're in prison now. Let me apply this to our church. If you're a Christian, um, be encouraged, brother. Be encouraged, sister. I know you're not in prison like, like those brothers and sisters in Eritrea, but be encouraged that you're still following Jesus with all the opposition of, that you face. You face different opposition. They face, um, they face trials, and we face um, treasures as distractions. So um, they're being beaten down by trials. We're being distracted by trials. But you have the world that opposes you a secular society that tries to get you to belittle and marginalize God and his word and his son Jesus and his truth that makes righteousness seem strange and sin seem normal. You face the devil and demons who seek to destroy your faith. And you face your own flesh, the only temptations in your own mind, in your own heart. And yet you are still standing firm in the faith. So be encouraged that you are still trusting in Jesus and you encourage others by your continual faith in Jesus. You still profess faith in Christ. Keep going. Keep coming on Sundays. You think that your attendance, your face on Zoom doesn't encourage anybody? It encourages people. It's a testimony of the fact that you're still holding on to Jesus. Church family, you have been an encouragement to one another in this church, so I praise God for you. Also, beyond that, you, you, Bethany Baptist Church, you have been an encouragement to other churches. Grace Church in Monterey Bay, I was there two Sundays ago preaching to that church, and they have been encouraged by you. Their pastor, one of their other pastors, their staff pastor, their non-staff pastor, and their other leader came down to our church for the weekender last November, and they were extremely encouraged by you. And they brought that back to their church. And now what BBC has done in them, our little investment in them, continues to encourage the pastors as they shape that church. You have done that. You, and I'm not, the volunteers have done it, but even Sunday when you gathered together, the members meeting that they sat in, you are the ones who encourage them by your faith. You have done that. To Grace Church in Monterey Bay, last Sunday I was with Echo Church, or at least I was on Zoom with some of their members. And um, that church has been invested in by BBC. You have been an encouragement to many of their members and to their pastors, or to their pastor, J.D. We've encouraged Reform Church LA. We're sending two of our members to, um, we're releasing, transferring two of our members, Lord willing, to Reform Church LA to be an encouragement to them. And we've encouraged their pastors, and they've been here in our, in our Shepherd LA network and in our, in our meetings. And so you have been an encouragement, BBC, to other churches. Just keep going. Be encouraged that you're growing, be encouraged that you are an encouragement to other churches. You are moving the gospel forward, not just in this church, but beyond this church, just by being a faithful member of this church. So praise God for those two reasons. Now the last one, and we're going to spend most of our time on this last point. So be encouraged, number one, by your growth. Number two, by your encouragement to other churches. And number three, be encouraged by, and here's how I wrote in my notes, be encouraged by your opposition. 
by the fact that you are being opposed. Be encouraged by your opposition, verses 5 through 10. Now, verse 5, the beginning of verse 5, gives the main idea of this whole, these six verses. Okay, so look at verse 5 with me. It, and it, I'm thinking, is referring to the persecutions, all the persecutions and afflictions for Jesus. So when you get to verse 5, your persecutions and afflictions for Jesus is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom. Okay, so here's the main idea. Your affliction, your Christian suffering, your Christian opposition, your opposition for being a Christian is proof, it's evidence that God is righteously judging you and this world. That's the main idea here. So you should be encouraged that God is righteously judging. But I, I didn't put that as your encouragement. I said you should be encouraged by your opposition. Why? Because we need to answer this question. It's not immediately obvious that, that us suffering for Jesus is God's righteous judgment. I mean, if you've been locked in prison for 17 years or your dad or your mom or your pastor has been locked in prison for 15 years in Eritrea because you're a Christian, and then someone says, hey guys, be encouraged. God is righteously judging because look, your pastor's in prison for 15 years. Like, that doesn't seem righteous. That seems unjust. That seems unfair. That seems, that is, that is not just, it doesn't seem, that is wrong. That is sinful that they're doing that. How can you say this is God's righteous judgment that the affliction is here? So we need to answer this question. Why is persecution evidence of God's righteous, his right judgment? Now, Paul gives us three reasons why here in this passage. And so, again, for the second half of the message, there's this one big subpoint. okay? There are three reasons why this suffering is God's right judgment and not wrong judgment. It's his righteous judgment, not his unjust and unfair judgment. And the three reasons are, I'll give them to you with one word for each, preparation, damnation, and salvation. Okay? Three reasons why God is right in judging, why God is righteously judging, um, even as there is persecution and unjust treatment in this world because of preparation, because of damnation, and because of salvation. Okay, so let's look at the first reason here. Um, why is persecution right? Here's the first one, preparation. Persecution is God's righteous judgment because opposition prepares you for God's kingdom. Or to use Paul's words, opposition makes you worthy of the kingdom. Do you guys see that there in verse 5? Look at it again in verse 5. I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. Verse 5 says, um, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will, here's the purpose, so that, or in order that, you will be what? In order that you will be counted what? Worthy of God's kingdom. Do you want to be worthy of God's kingdom? Do you want to be in God's kingdom as one of God's kingdom citizens? Jesus tells this parable at, about the wedding feast where someone wasn't dressed right. Do you remember that story? And Jesus, Jesus says that the, the the owner or the, the host of the party says to the guest who's not dressed correctly, throw him out of the party and lock him out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throw him to the outer darkness because he is not worthy, he's not prepared to be here in the wedding banquet. And here, what Paul is saying is your affliction, when people oppose you, when people insult you, when people give you the cold shoulder, when people don't want to relate to you as warmly, because you're in Christ and because you want Christ to be in them, then be encouraged because God is preparing you. He's making you worthy. 
He's preparing you to be counted as worthy of God's kingdom. What does it mean to be counted worthy? That almost sounds like I got to be persecuted to earn salvation. I'm not worthy yet, but if I get persecuted, then I earn salvation. So is Paul teaching here work salvation, that you're saved by works, that you're justified or counted worthy by works? No, Paul's not saying that. He doesn't say that. He, said you're, he says you're saved, I'm talking about justification. Um, you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So he's not saying that your suffering and the work of going through suffering Um, you're making yourself worthy of salvation. So it's not work salvation. But we need to ask this question, how does suffering make you worthy of the kingdom? Here's how it makes you worthy. It makes you holy. Suffering takes your values. If you handle suffering correctly, it moves your eyes from this world to the unseen world. It, It moves your minds from things below to things above. It moves your minds from the things that are visible to the things that are invisible. And that is preparing you for the kingdom to come, okay? Um, Jesus, or it says in Hebrews, the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So another way you could say it is persecution and opposition, trials make you holier. And you know what? Like John Piper said in his sermon on this text, I encourage you to listen to it. He says that God cares about your holiness far more than your health. Okay, so if you're thinking about um, health, John Piper gives two analogies here. He says, if God had a dollar, he would spend one penny on your health and 99 cents on your holiness. Or another way he said it, um, if, if, if God's concern was as high as the heavens, then God's concern for your holiness would be as high as the, the earth to the, to the clouds. And his concern for your health would be an inch off of the ground. Because God is preparing you to be worthy of the kingdom that is coming, that is here and that is coming. In other words, affliction shapes your faith and your desire for God and his kingdom, and it changes you more and more into a person who is fitting for God's holiness, for God's presence, and for God's kingdom. We know Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but that's hard to do, right? One of the verses that I'm memorizing with my two youngest daughters is Matthew 6, 24. No one... No one can serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24. A, the first part of Matthew 6, 24. But no one can serve two masters. And we often serve the wrong master. And what persecution does is it fits us to worship and serve the right master. Opposition pressures you and makes you worthy of the kingdom the way that fire refines gold and makes, you, makes gold purer and purer for the master. Or it's like pressure on coal that the trial and the opposition pressures you to make you the diamond that is fitting of value for the kingdom of God, all right? So that's the first reason why you should be encouraged by your opposition. And this is why it's right for God to allow you and to ordain for you to be locked in a prison, in a, in a container, a metal container for 15 years. This is why it's part of God's righteous judgment because he's preparing saints in America, In Southeast LA, in Eritrea, he's preparing saints for the kingdom. So it's right for God to ordain these things. Let me give you a second reason why it's right for God to ordain, why it's right, God's righteous judgment with persecution. Damnation, that's my category, right? Damnation. Persecution is God's righteous judgment because God will righteously judge your opposition. Persecution is right because God will judge your persecutors. 
That's why it's part of God's righteous judgment. This is verse 6, and the second half of verse 7, 8, and 9, okay? So let's look at these verses just briefly to touch on them. Verse 6, why is this, um, why is this clear evidence of God's righteousness? Verse 6 gives us the reason, since, that's why, it's, that's why these are reasons, since it is right or it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So why is this righteous? Because God will repay them. Those who afflict you, God will afflict. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's not God being mean. That's God being righteous, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They afflict you, God will afflict them. That's verse 6. Look at verse 7, the second half of verse 7. It says, um, 7 going into verse 8. This will take place, the second half of verse 7. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. This, this repaying will take place when Christ returns with his powerful angels. Verse 8. When he takes vengeance, so here's the repaying, here's the damnation. When he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey, and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So these are those who are not Christian, those who are not in Christ. They don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They don't know the true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. They reject the triune God, God the Father. And because they do that, because they don't know God and they don't obey Christ, Christ will come with his angels and he will come with a flame, with a fire of flame or a flaming fire to burn up his enemies, to take revenge. And this is not arbitrary, petty revenge. This is righteous vengeance. This is judgment. This is just punishment for their sins, for their rejection of God. Because according to Paul in Romans, they do know God. Everyone knows God. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's not a fact that they're just merely ignorant, innocently ignorant. They're culpably ignorant. There's a difference. They don't know God, but it's not because they're not accountable. It's because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When you don't know God who's revealed himself in nature, and you reject Jesus Christ who's revealed, revealed himself in the gospel, then you are damned. And the penalty is that Christ will take vengeance on you with a flame of fire. That's judgment. And then verse 9 expands, gives us another um, piece of this damnation. They, these people, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. So in other words, they will be, if they're paying an eternal destruction, they will be eternally damned. They will be eternally damned. Okay? So in their damnation... In their damnation, um, they will be destroyed forever. Now, this doesn't mean they'll cease to exist. That's called annihilationism. We don't believe in that. We believe in eternal conscious punishment. They will be under God's wrath, destroyed forever and ever and ever by being separated away from the Lord's glorious, blissful, blessed presence and away from the glory of his strength. For, for those who are in Christ, his glory and strength will be for us, not against us. But for them, his glory and strength will be against them in his absence, in his, the absence of his blessed presence. So they will be damned, those who are apart from God. And I understand maybe some of you are not Christian who are listening to this message. And yes, God is saying that if you're not in Christ, that you will be damned. Now this judgment and curse is fitting and right because God promised this to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. You remember that in Genesis 12, 3? I will bless those, he said to Abraham, I will bless those who what? Who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you or those who treat you with contempt. 
those who declare you cursed, those who treat Christians with contempt and dismissal. When people dismiss Christians for their Christianity, they do that just like those people of old dismissed the prophets because of their faithfulness to God's message and to God's word. And most importantly, when they dismiss Christians, they dismiss Christians because they dismiss, they dismiss Christ and they treat Christ with contempt. Think about it. If the main reason that they're rejecting you is because you are following Jesus and you want them to follow Jesus and they reject you for that, they're ultimately rejecting who? Jesus, not you. They disregard the lordship of Jesus, the Messiah, and so they disobey him and his gospel. And that is why they are damned. That is why they are cursed. Not ultimately because the church is special in and of itself, but you, when you curse Christians, the true church of Jesus Christ, you're actually cursing Jesus. And in that, you are incurring your, the curse on yourself. So if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you very clearly that you are damned, condemned to eternal destruction before Jesus if you don't trust in Jesus. That's bad news. Because we're sinners and because we're accountable to God, that's bad news. But here's the good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to live the life we should have lived. Jesus died on the cross, taking the wrath of God, taking the judgment, the damnation of God on himself, your damnation and my damnation. Jesus took it on himself on the cross for three hours there in darkness. And then he died. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And in that, uh, everyone who trusts in Jesus and turns from their sin will receive forgiveness of sins. They'll receive eternal life and salvation. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you to call on the Lord Jesus to save you. Call on him to save you, and he will. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this leads to our third, our third reason why this is God's righteous judgment. Not just because of preparation and damnation, but lastly, because of salvation. Persecution is God's righteous judgment because God will righteously save you. Look at verse 7. For those who are Christian, it says, um, God will... It is right for God to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. So if you're a Christian, you are going to get salvation. You will get relief from your suffering. You'll be in a, 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 a metal container for 16 years or 20 years. And then when Christ comes, you'll have relief. Not for 16 years, not for 16,000 years, but for 16 billion ages of years. Forever, you will have relief. It's a light momentary affliction. And then you get relief. When Christ comes. So it's right to suffer now. It's right for some of you, BBCers, to have estranged relationships with other people because you're gospelizing them. It's fitting to do that because God will give you relief. Not now, not in this life, but in the life to come. And because God will give you relief, you should be thankful. You should be encouraged. God is right to do that. For the Thessalonians, for Paul's team, for the Christians in Eritrea, for you if you're a Christian, God will give you relief soon enough. And then go to verse 10, the last verse. On that day when he comes to take vengeance and eternal destruction on the enemies, verse 10, on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed. Jesus will come and he'll be glorified by us. We will see his glory and we will worship him and we will marvel at him. When we see Christ in his glory, coming with a flaming sword, with a sword that comes out of his mouth in Revelation, he wipes out the enemies with a breath. We're going to stand in awe of Jesus. We're going to get our glorified bodies. 
We're going to meet him in the air, it says in 1 Thessalonians. And man, we're going to marvel. We're going to be amazed at who Jesus is when he comes to save his people and to be glorified among his people who believe. As one song says, surround, I can only, you guys know the song, some of you know the song, I can only imagine. Surrounded by his glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine, and we ought to imagine this. Actually, that's what Paul's doing in verse 10. When Christ comes, we will see him. We will be changed, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And we will marvel. It's going to be the most amazing thing we've ever experienced. That's going to be a sweet day. Why will, be, why will Jesus be marveled at by these people, according to verse 10? It says here, because our testimony among you was believed. Because we believed in Jesus. They, the Thessalonians believed Paul and Timothy and Silvanus' gospel message. And so imagine this, you're believing this message for so long, you're suffering for Jesus, you're facing opposition for Jesus, and you live your whole life, or as long as the rest of your life, living for Jesus, and you go through all kinds of craziness in this life and all kinds of trials. And then you see Jesus, and you're like, wow, this is real. This is true. He, this, I mean, the Jesus that we worship, I mean, we've never seen him. And you're going to see him, and you're going to marvel at him. You're going to be like, this is amazing. Like, he's here. Like, he is, he's always been here. But like now I could see him. He's here. And they will marvel because you've believed in Christ. And now your faith will become sight. So persecution now is God's righteous judgment because, three reasons, because God is preparing you for his kingdom, because he will damn the opposition and eventually, and because eventually he will save, he will finally save. We're talking about final salvation here, not initial salvation. He will finally save his people. So Christian, Live for Jesus without fear and be willing to suffer. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to be opposed. Church family, we are, we are to be a community of sufferers who support and encourage each other as we take risks in loving people in the name of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I say to you again, you will suffer in this world. But let me say this. Or let me ask you this. You're going to suffer. Everyone's going to suffer in this world. Unless you have a sudden death in relatively young health, you're going to suffer in this world. And so here's my question for you. What is worth suffering for? You're going to suffer, but what's worth suffering for? What is worth dying for? And what is worth living for? In your life's challenges, be encouraged to stand firm in the faith. So to wrap up everything, be encouraged by your growth. Be encouraged by your encouragement to other Christians and be encouraged by your suffering for Jesus. You know, God evidences, God has evidences of grace all around us. He wants us to be encouraged, right? I should be encouraged by my growth. I should be encouraged by encouraging others. I should be encouraged by my persecution. In other words, everywhere you turn, if you put the eyes of the Bible, like in your, you know, if you see with the Bible, you could see everywhere you turn, you see evidences of grace everywhere. God is encouraging you everywhere, all the time. There's encouragement everywhere you turn. There's constantly grace swirling around us. Or as the hymn writer says, streams of mercy never ceasing. Now we should be encouraged and stand firm in Christ through all of life's challenges. But if we're honest, sometimes we stumble and fall, don't we? Sometimes we get down. And even though there's 
encouragement all around us, sometimes we let discouragement dominate us. Sometimes in light of that discouragement, we walk in the wrong direction. We sin against God. And we know the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. But if you, the penalty of sin is death. But if we take 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 to define the penalty, the penalty of sin is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. And we deserve that eternal destruction. We fail to stand firm. None of us have stand, stood firm. But there is someone who has stood firm. The Lord Jesus has stood firm without ever failing, without ever being dominated by discouragement. Even when he was discouraged, praying in the garden, asking for another way, even in the midst of his deepest discouragement, he did not let that dominate him. But the encouragement of God's goodness and grace and plan sustained Jesus. Jesus is the only one who never deserved eternal destruction, and yet Christ took on infinite destruction on that cross. He was separated, in a sense, from the Father's presence, and he was made a victim, not a, vic not, not a victim, made a, um, a criminal who was inflicted with the power of the glory of his might on that cross. He hangs on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In darkness, being infinitely destroyed, the Father turns his face away and exercises his infinite might in destroying Jesus for our sins, for our discouragement, for our letting discouragement dominate our lives to the point where we're actually thinking about giving up on Jesus. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us so that we can be encouraged to stand firm in our faith, in the midst of difficulties, challenges, and opposition. So here's my main call to you, brothers and sisters. Keep going with Jesus and keep growing in Jesus. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep going and keep growing. Keep going in or going with and growing in Jesus. And how do you do that very practically? I'll give you a weekly plan. Monday through Saturday, scatter from the church family and live with gospel intentionality. And maybe one thing I could say to you this week, maybe one takeaway for me, my own soul, is I want to text one of my neighbors something risky where I put Christ boldly in the text message. Like, hey, let's hang out. Um, I've been praying for you in the name of Jesus. And I'm praying for your salvation. So just something risky. I don't know what I'm going to text yet. I'll share with you if you ask me next week, but uh, hopefully I do it this week. But that's the thing is, when we scatter, let's scatter with gospel intentionality, hoping some will get saved, wanting everyone to get saved, but realizing we'll take opposition too. We have to, okay? So let's scatter with gospel intentionality Monday through Saturday. And on Sunday, let's gather with hungry desperation for Jesus, the bread of life. If you're discouraged on Sunday, that's not abnormal. But let's gather every Sunday hungry for Jesus, hungry to be encouraged in Jesus. Don't just make it a normal Sunday. Make every Sunday a, a, a feast where you're desperately hungry for him. If you don't keep going with and growing in Jesus, your encouragement will turn to false confidence and eventually it'll turn into delusion where your Christianity is just fake or dead. But if you go with Jesus and if you grow in Jesus in scattering and gathering, then God will supply you week by week, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, the encouragement you need to stand firm in the faith. 
I don't know what, G what news is going to hit you this week. 2020 has been crazy. I don't know what news is going to come out this week that is going to discourage you and derail you or tempt, tempt you to be derailed from following Jesus. But I do know this. Whatever news comes this week, God will continually and effectively encourage you to stand firm in Jesus. So receive that encouragement. Let's pray. Father, encourage us by your spirit, by your word. Thank you for growing us. Thank you for using us to encourage other Christians in our church. Thank you for using us to encourage other Christians from other churches. And thank you that you are righteously judging and you're allowing opposition in us to, to uh, opposition toward us to encourage us that you will prepare us. You're preparing us for the kingdom. You are um, going to damn those who reject you finally, and you're going to save those finally who trust in you. You're finally going to save us. So help us to keep our eyes on you and to stand firm in the faith, in difficulty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.